Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Padgett, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. I'm here today with Dr. Katie Burke, a physical therapist, and Stacey Sullivan, a speech and language pathologist from the Healy Center for ALS at Mass General Hospital in Boston. We are excited to have them here today to talk about multidisciplinary care in complex diseases. And we're going to start by having them introduce themselves. So, Katie, let's start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do at the ALS Center and your sort of day-to-day activities. Right. Hello, I am Katie Burke, and I am one of the physical therapists at the ALS Clinic. And in my role there, I work in our multidisciplinary clinic, seeing patients when they come in to see their neurologist. And then I'm also involved in our research studies, doing outcomes for some of the clinical trials and helping with protocol development and some of the data analysis for our observational studies. And how often does the ALS clinic happen? Right now it's every Tuesday, uh, pre-COVID. It was Monday mornings and all day Tuesday, and we are likely going back to that within the near future. Mm-hmm. And then do you see patients with ALS outside of the clinic for one-on-one physical therapy? No, I'll see them outside of the clinic when they come in for research visits, but it'll be the same role that I have in clinic, which is really assessing their needs and then figuring out how to address those, which may be referrals to community-based physical therapists. And then I act as a resource mm-hmm. for those therapists. Okay, great. Interesting. So I want to get over to Stacy and hear a little bit about her too. And then we'll dive right into the nitty gritty of what you guys do together. So Stacy, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and the clinics that you're involved in, that would be great. Sure. My name is Stacy Sullivan and I'm a speech language pathologist. I have a clinical focus on patients with motor speech and swallowing disorders and neurodegenerative disease. I work in the ALS clinic as a speech pathologist alongside Katie, and then I also service other neuro clinics, including Parkinson's disease and our ataxia and movement disorders clinic. We also have a swallowing disorders center at our institution, which I work as a part of a team there as well. And I also work for the Center for Rare Neurologic Disease and some separately grant-funded research projects focusing on various speech and swallowing components to patients with rare disease. So I have many hats that I wear. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You've got to be confused. Like, where do you go on what day? (laughs) It's a a little confusing, but I seem to find my way most days, so... Yeah, sounds challenging. (laughs) Um, But fun. It's so fun to have that kind of variety. I think that that's great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were interested in talking to you both because we really want to talk about multidisciplinary care. There's a lot of 
therapists out there that are involved in clinics or have access to clinics um, and that are seeing people with neurologic disorder. And we really want to sort of figure out like, how do we do this the best and what are other people doing? And so I'm wondering if you guys could talk about maybe sort of how the ALS clinic functions. Oh, our patients come in typically every two to three, sometimes every four to six months for a clinical appointment with their neurologist or with one of our nurse practitioners. And while they are there, they can meet with anyone from our team who they need to see. And that could include physical therapy or speech therapists. We don't have an occupational therapist in clinic, but we have one few floors down that we refer to. So many people will schedule same day to see the occupational therapist. We have a social worker, all of our nurses, research coordinators, a palliative care neurologist. We have a respiratory therapist who will come from inpatient to see some of our patients. And we do not have a nutritionist, but I know some other clinics do. And our nurses and speech therapists actually have taken over that component as best they can. And then we also have a brace clinic in the hospital that we can refer patients to same day if they need any bracing, especially off the shelf bracing. So we refer to it kind of as a one-stop shop where they can hopefully get most, if not all of their needs, at least addressed or have someone start addressing them. And then on like day of, what are the logistics like in the clinic? So we have a relatively small conference room that most of us sit in. And one of our research coordinators acts as the pilot of the clinic. So the patient comes in, they see their neurologist, the neurologist comes out and basically gives them a list of everyone that they need to see and what the focus for each person should be. And then the research coordinator who's acting as the pilot will coordinate who goes in when and keeps track of where we all are and where all of the patients are. And it usually works out. And how many patients do you have like per day in clinic? Probably anywhere from 25 to 40. Wow. Yes. And so how many neurologists are you working with? Well, they're not all in clinic at the same time. So they're usually probably six or seven in clinic for the day. Yeah. And then we have three nurse practitioners who see patients clinically. Right. And so, you know, obviously you're not seeing all of the patients because they might not all need have physical therapy needs, but the neurologists are seeing all the patients. Yes. Yeah. Or one of the nurse practitioners and they, they bill for the visit. The rest of us do not. So. Oh, okay. And so how much time do you typically spend (laughs) with each patient? So it depends. It depends largely on their needs, but unfortunately also on our room situation. And if we need to open up rooms to bring patients back, but for someone who really just needs a check-in or an introduction or maybe some education on exercise, it could be as little as 10 minutes, but then someone who has more equipment needs, is maybe further along, needs more referrals. I've definitely been in rooms for an hour with some of our patients to make sure everything is getting addressed. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. But you're not billing. No, I am covered by grants and philanthropy. So I think that's a little bit different than most clinics out there. Yes. And, and so, you know, how often are patients able to come back? Are they, is it sort of based on an individual need or is it sort of prescribed? It's based off of their needs. Most people come back every two to three months, depending on where they live. So some people who are further out may push that even up to every six months and they can do virtuals in between. And some people who are either new or more rapidly progressing, they come back within a month. So I would love Stacy to sort of hear from your perspective about this clinic. And, you know, we have a little bit of a sense from Katie of kind of how it goes down, but does it, is it a crazy day? Does it feel manageable or is it nutty? And I'm assuming that you also do not bill. Correct. Like Katie said, through grants and philanthropy, my time is accounted for. And so the number of patients I see during that time doesn't really matter in terms of billing, but I will bill for a patient if I'm seeing them for video fluoroscopy. And we do also refer out for all of our assistive technology needs. We do not provide that as a part of our clinic. And that is a built service that they actually are seen at a different facility because it's such a area of expertise. We, we use someone else to, to address those needs, but in terms of what the day feels like, um, I do think it feels crazy. Honestly, it feels very busy and it's, it's a lot of juggling because our role is really sort of the expert in disease in this particular disease. And our patients come from all over the world. And so we are often figuring out, you know, what they need and then most ALS specific way to address those needs. And then we're getting on the phone or reaching out to the community and trying to figure out how these patients can get their needs met locally. So there's a lot of communication in and outside of the institution. And then also just a lot of organization skills needed and balls in the air at a much higher level than, you know, in my regular practice, which is not in a multidisciplinary clinic where it, it feels like the demands of that are less still there, of course, as any therapist, I think experiences, but yeah, I mean, very truthfully, I think it's very busy and challenging. Yeah. So I like that you were bringing up the piece about communication and this sort of distinction of the internal communication that happens within the group, but then also there's got to be communication outside of that. So I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into that. So what is your internal communication like and how does that happen throughout this busy day of the clinic? So one of the the good things is that we're all sort of centrally located. So if I come in and see a patient whose neck control is, you know, very poor and really impacting their ability to eat and use alternative communication, I can go to Katie right away and and talk about that and how we can problem solve what the patient needs together. Um, Same with nursing, if there's secretion management meds, which seem to be not working or not on board. So that internal communication can happen live, which is great. And then we use a lot of email and we also use a lot of sending the chart back and forth through Epic. And is that all day of? 
that you're doing that a day of, and then everybody leaves with their little journal of to do's and it kind of bleeds throughout the week. I would say, uh, you know, we try to do it as much as we can in the moment, but there's definitely some things that can't be, especially on a busy clinic day, you, you don't have time in between patients necessarily. Sometimes I'll go back to the conference room and two more patients are waiting to see me. So I'll just, you know, scribble notes on a piece of paper and go right into the next room. All right. So is there any time that everybody gets together kind of debriefs? Mm. At the beginning of the day, we do, we do do a huddle where we go through each of the patients that does not include the neurologist or the nurse practitioners because they've already started seeing the patients, but usually while they're in with their first patients, the rest of us are available So we run through the list of patients and provide any updates that each of us have and concerns that we may have. And then everything else is done probably through email or Epic if we aren't able to talk in person with each other during clinic. Mm -hmm. Or phone. I feel like I call all of you many times a week with one-off things that need to be addressed. So I, I mean, I just, I'm kind of old school, I guess, where I feel like some things can just be better dealt with over quick conversation than lots of emails. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So the way that you were sort of describing this, like there could be recommendations that come out and you you might have people that are far away that are coming to this clinic. And then, and so now outreach has to happen sort of within their community is that something that is coordinated so that you guys can give your recommendation to sort of a central person and they can help reach out to the community to, to find a PT or to find SLP services or social support? Or are you kind of trying to help figure that all out individually too? We do we do most of that on our own, but we do talk with each other. So if Stacy knows of someone that she's going to be referring a patient to, then she'll let us know. And if they have PT there and they need PT, then great. We can reach out to the local ALS association and some of the local nonprofits to see if they can recommend anything. But really, it's a lot of phone calls to different clinics to ask about really what they're comfortable seeing and if they can take on the referrals and it's, it's a lot of time to figure it out. And, and so when you guys are deciding, I mean, you want to make sure then that, that when you're really referring somebody for services outside of the clinic, that they're going to be beneficial and that that your patient's going to utilize them. So do you feel like you have time to work with patients to figure that out Yes, but it usually happens outside of clinic. We usually do not do it while they're in clinic because we don't want to keep them there while we're doing the initial research. We also are part of the NEALS Consortium, which is the New England ALS Consortium, but it is it's an international consortium that was developed, I don't even know how long ago. But within the NEALS Consortium, there are different subcommittees. So there's a PTOT subcommittee, there's I think it's a full bar mm-hmm. subcommittee. And so we will sometimes reach out to those therapists and especially there are different ALS clinics and ask them for their recommendations in the area. Some of them treat patients. So 
great. We can refer to them directly, but otherwise they know where they've been referring patients and that's helpful. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that, that we try really hard to provide education to, there's a lot, especially um, in the home care setting, some therapists that tend to be just more generalists and might not have specific knowledge about working with patients with motor neuron disease, which in terms of exercise can be quite nuanced. And so I think that we do try very hard to build relationships, especially in the New England area where we kind of have our go-to people. And we also want people to feel comfortable kind of asking us what to do or, you know what I mean? And instead of just providing more general care. Yeah. I do. I encourage all of our patients to have their physical therapy or occupational therapist reach out to either myself or other PT just so they know that we're here, that we can answer any questions. They may know what they're doing, but we can then help with equipment. If something comes up that they don't know what to do, we can help at least talk them through it. And we have the whole team behind us. So even if I don't know the answer, I can go straight to the neurologist, the nurse practitioner. If it's more of a nursing or a speech question, I have them right next to me. So it's easier for me to help them problem solve some of the complex questions that come up. Okay. So you, you sort of have a core group that really is focused on this population of people and work together all the time. And then there's a couple of these, of other folks that kind of come in and help out in a regular, but they're not there all the time. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of? Yes. And our core group is our research group because when we're not in clinic, we are over actually in our offices doing research and all of the administrative stuff, but primarily doing our research visits. And then our clinical team is expanded and they come in for clinic and we collaborate as needed for patients. So what I want to hear from both of you on this. What do you like about working together in the ALS clinic? I like having so many resources readily available and our patients come in with complex needs and, and we've all had different experiences working in the clinic, but even outside of the clinic where we can come up with creative solutions. It's really in our clinic, the way that we do it, we rely heavily on each person's opinions and background and expertise to help us meet these patients' needs. That's great. Stacey? I share a similar sentiment. I think it's such an incredible model of patient care for a patient to come in for one appointment and to be able to see six providers um, without even leaving the unit. You know, they stay in the same room or maybe move to the room next door and they're not worrying about insurance or co-pays or conflict with the fact that they're already receiving home care and then they're being evaluated by an outpatient clinician. I mean, it's just such a great model of care to for the patient. It's so cohesive and incredible. And so I, I think it's really unique in that way um, that the ancillary services are not billed. And, you know, I agree with Katie, we're really develop this clinical expertise with this patient population. And we have incredible relationships with the physicians and the other providers to really provide this level of excellent care. That's, it's really unique, especially when I compare it to 
some of the other clinics that I work in that maybe won't have the, the longevity of the people that work in this clinic is, is something, I mean, people stay, right. It's a career versus some of the other clinics I work in the therapist turnover every couple of years. And, you know, as is in the field, very common. So this attracts a population of providers, which are extremely dedicated. Um, and I, I, I love being a part of that. Another piece that I don't think we mentioned before was the ability to facilitate continuity of care across the admission. So when our patients are admitted for planned admissions or emergent admissions, we are there. And we actually, for planned admissions, put together a whole document that communicates with the inpatient staff on mobility, breathing, swallowing, communication, all of that, and kind of provide this very warm handoff to the physicians and the nurses taking care of the patient while they're in-house. And then if they're emergently admitted and we don't know about it, we kind of scramble and put that together and directly communicate with the providers that are seeing the patient while they're in-house. So it's really a nice model for the patients kind of from every angle of care. Great. I love that. um, The, you know, ability to sort of coordinate care and take it across um, the, the, you know, from this outpatient site to when they're inpatient and, and that longevity I think is huge. I do think that the the institution that we work for is fairly unique. I've been there for 10 years, but before that I had like eight other jobs. I also think some of the examples that we provide are not that relevant maybe to like more community level institutions. Just to throw that out there. I think you're right. I mean, smaller clinics can't necessarily operate the way that you guys are operating, would you have advice for folks or ideas for ways that they could maybe more efficiently collaborate, especially if they're just seeing their patients, if it's at once a month kind of clinic or every other week or not quite as robust? I think developing relationships with local therapists is probably the most realistic, but also the most useful way to optimize care, maybe the most efficient way to optimize care for the patients. And if you can do some community outreach and get to know the therapist in the area and who is really qualified or willing to learn uh, what to do with these patients, then that can go a long way. Specific to ALS, at least there's um, several, there's the, the ALS Association has their local chapters and there's a group called Compassionate Care for ALS. And these are nonprofit groups that are really knowledgeable on how to help patients navigate insurance issues or they have loaner equipment. And so if you don't have the ability or the manpower to do some of that stuff yourself, um, knowing how to kind of outsource it, even if it's not with another therapist, but it's with a another member of the community is I think really helpful. Cause I don't, even when I came to the clinic, um, you know, it's been a while now, but I never used them in the beginning and now I use them like every day and they're my lifeline to mm-hmm. get patients connected faster and better. 
it's, it's helpful, especially if you're, if you're in a community hospital, a small center and you're not sure what to do. Right. The other, the Niels Consortium is another, I know there are a lot of small clinics that are part of the Niels Consortium. And then you have access to therapists and providers who see ALS all the time, or at least part of the time. And so you have a group of people there that you can reach out to. Mm-hmm. So Stacy, I'm curious how this compares to the other clinics that you're involved in. Well, I think that, you know, to be frank, funding is a large source of how the clinic is able to run in ter- you know, even down to how much space you can get in the hospital to run your clinic, um, the amount of exam rooms you can acquire. And so the other clinics are referral based and you bill and your time is not compensated. You directly compensate for your own time by billing the patient. But I will say that I was a part of the Huntington's disease clinic as well, which was run this way. Um, and they had a PT and OT and a speech therapist, but those two clinics, I think are the, are the ones at our institution that are run with just involving the therapists to kind of see and do whatever they want while they're there. And all of the other ones are more referral based, but I think that being a part of these philanthropic clinics has just, it's developed my relationship with PT and OT and nursing in a way that in the outpatient setting, sometimes you're in your own area and then, you know, the PTs are in the gym. And and so you're not communicating with them as regularly, but now it's just my go-to in terms of how I think about the patient, though it's really whole patient. And so I think that that mindset for clinicians to get, no matter how their clinic is designed or built, I think is the, the piece. So, you know, Katie, this might be more of a question for you because you're doing ALS all the time, but how do you cope with the sort of burden of this difficult degenerative disease, you know, that people are um, having to, to deal with and come to terms with? We get asked that question quite a bit. Yeah. We have a great team. Our patients are amazing and very grateful But I think the big thing that probably keeps most of us going is that we have exciting research going that we can offer to our patients. There is hope. And we're a clinic that does research alongside clinical care. So we're not meeting these patients and giving them a diagnosis and saying there's nothing we can do. We're meeting them. We're providing the clinical care. We're doing everything we can to optimize their quality of life And at the same time, we're running clinical trials that they can choose to participate in or not that may or may not end up being the next big breakthrough. So we all have hope. And really, that's probably what gets me through it. And the patients are just very, very grateful. So and how early do you start having conversations about like the decline that's coming getting people sort of mentally prepared for, you know, assistive devices and bracing and wheelchairs and eventually talk about yes or no to a respirator, you know, like how soon do you start that? Well, it depends on the patient. 
And when they're ready to hear it, as long as we can wait for them to reach that point, I think sometimes it's easier for for me as opposed to Stacy because the big decision is around equipment. And yes, those are big talks to have. Some people just moving to a cane is a big step, a walker, and then the wheelchair is a huge step, a huge milestone in their disease progression. But a feeding tube or losing the ability to communicate, I think is harder for people to take, at least from what I've seen. So we can go to Stacy for that. I would say we start the conversation right away. I, you know, there's definitely the patient that's just diagnosed and I meet them 20 minutes later and I gauge where they're at and I don't, I just kind of introduce myself and I over, I go over how the role of SLP in the ALS clinic is supportive care. And, you know, um, but I have to go there pretty quickly with people because we need to plan. We need to figure out what you want and what's feasible and how we're going to get it. And, um, so we, we do go there pretty quickly. So by the time we meet them and they're officially diagnosed, it's they're, they're pretty, they're moving usually towards the end of their life. And I just think that it's such a privilege to be able to help people navigate how they are going to have as much autonomy as possible over their own communication and swallowing and like what all of that means for them and allowing them to play this really forward facing role and what it's going to look like is such an important role of an allied health provider. So I think that it's sad. We get emails every single day that our patients have passed away, but it's really a privilege to be able to participate in the life of these patients. And I, I think that we all share that sentiment in this really deep way. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's informed the way that you treat other patients with neurodegenerative diseases that are on that trajectory as well, but maybe not quite as fast? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I have, I think, a lot more tools at my disposal. I'm much, you know, we really use a lot of airway clearance with the ALS population, which is something that I really brought to other neuro patients in a way that I wasn't really on my radar before. I think of the G-tube in a much different way, um, more of a tool um, to manage symptoms than a life-prolonging treatment. And those are things that before I came to ALS, and granted, I was a younger clinician as well. So I think my lens in general was not as flexible, but I would say that I absolutely use a lot of secretion management medications, a lot of the tools that we use in our clinic. My, my colleagues, of course, PT and OT and all the things that I know they can bring. So it's been, it's changed for everyone. Yeah. I think one of the things that's hard for a lot of therapists is that if you're not used to having those conversations or starting people sort of thinking that way, it's, it's hard. It's hard to, to get practice doing that. You guys are getting a lot of practice doing that. And, and I think our patients ultimately appreciate it because it's stuff that they think about, right. That they just haven't verbalized, but they know this stuff is, is coming and having somebody that they can talk to about it, I think is important, but it's hard if you're not used to it, to to start those conversations and start thinking about some of these things. 
We have the benefit of, we have a neuropalliative doc and then the, uh, the neurologists um, and the nurse practitioners. And when there's a really hard situation, we'll often go in together. And that has absolutely strengthened my skill set around having those serious illness conversations. Um, we also have formal training that we take through these modules and stuff that the institution provides. So I think that there's a lot of support around that, but also I think you're right. The experience and doing it with a physician or a nurse practitioner has really been informative. Yeah, that's great. I work in acute care and the palliative care team is like my same. I know, you know, I love, I love when they're involved. They really, they just kind of like cut right to the brass tacks. Like, you know, this is, and they really get people to talk and that's kind of what, you know, they put it all out there. And I think it's important for patients to be making informed decisions and really kind of know what the choices are and what it means for their future. So you guys, this has been such an interesting and great conversation. So many more ideas have come out of this and more things that we want to talk about, but we only have so much time. And as you know, we like to ask people what they do when they're not working. So Stacy, we're going to start with you. So this is a little bit more of what I want to do when I'm not working, but um, <laughs> I think that will have to pass. So I have this whole alter ego as an event coordinator at hotels. And whenever I travel, I always somehow get everyone together that's staying at the hotel and create community events. And I get everyone to meet at a certain place or do something together as a big group, even though no one knows each other and it's like my most favorite thing to do and um okay wait a minute you go to a hotel and you find people that like you don't know and that don't know each other and you're like hey we're gonna do whatever in the bar at six o'clock and people show up is that how it goes down Mm -hmm. this past weekend I went away with my husband for his birthday and I organized a COVID safe bonfire for the other guests of the hotel and um, convince the hotel staff to open fire pits for us. And um, I have a history of doing it pretty much on every vacation we go on. So it's my, it's my, um, my second career down the road someday. All right. I want to go on vacation with you. <laughs> that sounds so fun. All right, Katie Burke. <laughs> well, now my answer is going to be so boring. Uh, <laughs> can't beat that. I... When I am not working, I do spend time with my my toddler. And when I get a break from her, I actually am obsessed with Redfin and looking at houses, even though I'm not looking to move. I, as soon as we moved into our condo, started looking for the next place and mark my dream homes that if I were to ever li- win the lottery, that would be the place that I would buy. So I spend a lot of time doing that. And then recently I've been learning how to play bridge, which really ages yeah. me, but it's yeah. quite fun. So, yeah, <laughs> and you can do I it know. virtually. I've, yeah. I've tried to get my husband to, to be interested in bridge, but it hasn't worked. It takes some time. Um, yeah. COVID probably it's helped, but mm-hmm. we've done some zoom zoom dates with our friends to play bridge. 
Yeah, <laughs> fun, fun. All right, you guys. Well, thank you so much for being here. We're, we're excited to have you and have this conversation. So thank you, Katie Burke. Thank you, Stacey Sullivan. And we hope you'll come back and chat with us again soon. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Crandall, Katie McGraw, Adriana Carey, Rebecca Martin, and Mira Pierce. I am Parm Padgett. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. And I don't even know if I'm supposed to be saying that because it's like a commercial, but it's good. (laughs) You guys are relentless. It's like, Sarah, Rebecca, like, I can't read the chat fast. (laughs) So whenever... Well, let her ask you. Let her her ask you first. Let me ask you just for this. Now I'm thinking about that. So good idea. (laughs) Stacey just volunteered for another No, I didn't. I mean, maybe I did, but I don't know. Yeah, I was just oh. waiting. I can't see Katie, so I, was I didn't want to know if you were answering. <laughs> I know, I did, but sorry. <laughs> <laughs>